All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Thank you, Rachel. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Thank you for playing your ukulele, correct? That's what it is, right? So it's no honey, I shrunk the guitar. <laughs> Just a ukulele. And uh, hopefully it won't be too long before Mrs. Pierce plays her guitar and sings for us sometime as well. I'm after her a little bit about that. Let me tell you something. If uh, God's blessed you with an ability to sing, and uh, I want you to know we... we uh, we would love for you to take that opportunity to serve the Lord and sing in the choir or special music, something like that. Use your talents to bless other people and uh, encourage the saints. Um, thank you, Rachel, for doing that. Here in Second Corinthians chapter 12, um, as Rachel was singing, she, there was one part of that song she talked about. Uh, the song talks about they're willing to go wherever God would lead. And... Um, you know, for many of us, God has us right where he wants us to be. In fact, I believe that's true for all of us. There might be somebody here this morning where you're not where you need to be, and God's led you somewhere else, and you have resisted him. That may be true. But for many in this room, I believe God has you right where he wants you to be. Um, that might be working in the shop. That might be working as a contractor. Um, in the house you live, with the children you have. Uh, might be in retirement. Um, but no matter where God has us, we ought to all be willing, we ought to all be able to say, God, I'm willing to go and do and be exactly what you want me to be and exactly where you want me to, be, where you want me to go. A couple of weeks ago when we were on vacation in Pennsylvania, we went to a church that we normally attend when we're out in Pennsylvania on vacation. And uh, I walked in on that Sunday morning with my family, and I was greeted by one of the ushers who's been there ushering for, I think my first time ever at that church was 12 years ago, and uh, his name is Ike Fisher, and uh, he greeted me, and I greeted him, and, and he looked at me, and he said um, something quite startling to me that I was unaware of, and he said that his brother had passed away. His brother's name was Andy Fisher. Both Ike and Andy were born and raised in Amish uh, as Amishmen, and uh, Andy, when he was uh, when he was younger, still I think in his teens or in his twenties, uh, came to the conclusion that uh, salvation was by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he believed that a person could receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again and know that they were saved based upon the promises of the Word of God. And, uh, and so Andy Fisher had received Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And ten years later, Ike, his brother, received Christ and was saved. And they both had served as deacons at this church and ushers and were very involved. Well, um, Ike told me a couple weeks ago that Andy who was older, he was in his 80s, I believe, uh, had pulled out in, into, uh, from an intersection and had been broadsided and had died. And uh, it really struck me. Um, 
Years ago, when I met Andy Fisher, he had written a book about his daughter. Now, I'm giving you a little background here. He was saved. He followed Jesus Christ in salvation out of the Amish church. And, um, and he married his wife, and they had children. And uh, when his daughter was still fairly young, she was uh, kidnapped and, uh, and taken advantage of and murdered. And uh, I can remember when I met him 12 years ago, uh, Andy Fisher just took a liking, liking to me. And, uh, and he said, you know what, I'm going to pray for you. And he would, at that time I was traveling as a representative for Pensacola Christian College with an ensemble. And so I preached a 15-minute message. I know it's hard to imagine. <clears throat> and, uh, and, uh, and he said, you know, I think God's going to use you in a special way, and I want to pray for you, and I'm going to pray for you every week. And he did. For the last 12 years, Mr. Andy Fisher prayed for me every week. And many times he would call me, and, uh, and he would encourage me. I can remember uh, about four and a half years ago, I was, had just begun to pastor here, and um, he called me up one day and he said, uh, you know, what are you teaching, what are you preaching on? And I told him some of the different series we were working through. And at that time, I was teaching in Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, four times a week. And he said, now, now, now you're, you're doing all the teaching? He said, uh, don't you think you're going to wear your people out? I mean, I'm just saying they're probably going to get tired of hearing your voice. And, uh, and he was just a very practical, uh, very upfront kind of individual. And, uh, but he prayed for me every week. And uh, the Lord took him in a, what we would call an accident, a uh, car wreck. And uh, Cindy and I got to talk to his widow, Mrs. Fisher, and hug her and... Uh, mourn with her a little bit. But I think about a life like that, and uh, I believe Andy Fisher lived the life God wanted him to live, where God wanted him to live it. He was an encouragement to his church, but he endured great suffering. He endured great suffering. Are you willing to go through whatever it is God wants you to go through? Being a Christian does not mean a life of ease. Being a Christian does not mean that everything, the cards are going to be stacked in your favor, or things are going to go easily for you. Because Jesus Christ has saved you from death and hell does not mean that your life is going to be free from turmoil and heartache. And um, as I pondered Andy Fisher's life, I thought, wow. You know, my first thought was, Lord, couldn't you have taken him another way than in this accident and him dying in a car? I mean, his poor wife. You know, these were my human responses, my thoughts. But I want us to know this morning that God's ways are not our ways, and they are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. In Job, Job suffered, he was a man who suffered, and he said, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man's born unto trouble. Hardship and heartache and trials are part of human life. Now, sometimes you and I go through hardship consequences because of bad decisions, okay? Because of sinful things, uh, because of sinning. Uh, sometimes you and I bear consequences. He that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. We get what we sow. 
Um, but sometimes, and we studied Joseph not long ago, Joseph didn't sow to the flesh, and yet God allowed him, actually led him into intense trials for God's glory and for Joseph's good. You're in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, and I want to read our text. The Apostle Paul was a godly man. God used him to pen down much of the New Testament. Um, many of the New Testament books of the Bible, God used the Apostle Paul to plant. God used the Apostle Paul to lead many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He would stand for truth. He was a man's man. He stood for righteousness, and he followed God. Um, and yet, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was suffering. He was suffering. And not for any wrong that he had done, But God was working in Paul's life. And I want you to know this morning that God is working in your life. You know, we look around the room today and I see a corporate body of believers. There's a bunch of us here. Uh, The Lord looks at us, and while I look out and I see a lot of familiar faces and friends and people I love, And I know some of the trials that you might be going through. The bottom line is, I don't know half of it when I look out on the audience this morning. But when God looks around the room this morning, he knows every single detail in every one of our lives. And he knows exactly where we are in our walk with the Lord. He knows where some of us are struggling He knows where some of us are distraught. We're at the point where we don't know if we can take any more and we're going to break. He knows others in this room, it's a wonderful day. We're we're feeling the blessings of God, the sun's on our face, and the, the, the temperature's just right, and it's just wonderful. Everything, nothing could go better. For some of us in this room, it's things are like that. But God knows where each one of us are. And and God knew where the Apostle Paul was. Notice where he was in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse number 7. And I'm going to read down through verse number 10. Paul says this, and this is a familiar passage to many of us, but I've never pondered it with us this morning. He says this in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul responds to God now in the middle of verse 9, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Don't raise your hand this morning, but how many of you would acknowledge this morning in your heart and in your mind before the Lord Jesus Christ today, that you're facing a situation that is completely beyond your capability to handle it or to fix it or even to go through it. 
How many of you, without raising your hand, would say before the Lord, God, I am weak. I do not have the strength in myself to handle this situation. Paul came to the conclusion, and we'll ponder this passage this morning. As a result of the truths that we'll see, Paul's conclusion was, when I am weak, it makes room for God's strength in my life. You see, God wants his power. He wants you to know his power. He wants you to know you're weak, but he is sufficient for your trial. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you'd help us. Father, we are needy people. We are weak. We acknowledge that this morning. We do not have it within ourselves to handle what it is that we're facing. So, Father, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. Help us to understand our trials, why you allow them into our lives, why life sometimes is so hard. And, God, may we learn why, and may we learn to rely on you and know your strength and your power. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My grace is sufficient for you. That was God's response to Paul's plight. Paul's concern, his frustration is he's overwhelmed, and God responds to him by saying, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Uh, The Bible says a lot about grace, and we'll not take much time to speak of it this morning, but the Bible says a lot about grace. And on the surface, our passage looks like, I think, it looks like one of the lowest points in, 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 in Paul's life, his entire life. I believe it was. One of the lowest points in, in the life of the Apostle Paul. In reality, the, the pathway to being encouraged, strengthened, having the power of God for every servant of the Lord is seen in this passage. And so, uh, I want you to look back, if you would, just one, one chapter to chapter 11 for just a moment. I think you'll see why I say this is such a hard time in Paul's life. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 22, I find the Apostle Paul having to defend his apostleship. That, the fact that he's an apostle. He has to defend himself. This would be like uh, many people, and maybe even some of the congregation, attacking me and saying, pastor, for, uh, Seth, you're not a pastor. You're not pastoral quality. You're not a very good speaker. You don't make good decisions. And really, we're just kind of fed up with you. Those are the kind of ideas that Paul was facing. Uh, the Apostle Paul was facing these kind of attacks. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 22, I'll begin there, and he's having to defend himself. He's being attacked. He says this in verse 22, and I'm going to read down through verse 30. He says, and they, Hebrew, and they Hebrews, so am I. Are they Hebrews? He said, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes. He says, I was beaten forty stripes, save one, five times. Of the Jews, thrice, in verse 25, he says, was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, 
in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. They were accusing him of lying, and he says, I'm not lying. I'm doing what is right, I'm doing what is true. I've suffered for you, verse 32. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, kept the city of uh, the Damascenes with the garrison desirous to apprehend me. And through a window in the basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. And so this is a, he's defending himself. And this, and I might say it this way, this is a beleaguered man. You know, we as men, we like to go around and our shoulders are back and our chest is out. And you know what? We can just about handle anything, you know. And we're men. We can defend our families. We can provide for our families and show us a job and we'll find a way to fix it. And if we can't fix it ourselves, we'll find a way to pay for it and There's this confidence that men tend to have, but if any man has lived long enough on this earth, he knows he's gone through times where his shoulders are stooped and his heart is broken and his confidence is all but gone. He doesn't believe in himself. And he's just about wrung out. And that's where the Apostle Paul was. On many occasions, as he sought to accomplish the will of God, He was beaten. Just about everywhere he went, he faced the defection of people that he had ministered to and loved. People that he had given the gospel to, and maybe they had made professions of faith, and they turned and they walked away. Toward the end of his life, he says, all in Asia have forsaken me. What was going on in Corinth? False teachers had come in, and they were endeavoring to establish their lies in the church of Corinth. Paul loved this church. He watched them believing the lies. And Paul had been gone a year and a half, and while he was away, they came in in order to be able to find a platform to teach lies. They were attempting to destroy the people's confidence in the Apostle Paul. And so there was an all-out massive assault on the character of Paul. They said he was in the ministry for money. They said he was in the ministry uh, as a liar and a fraud. They said Paul had no authority from the apostles to do what he was doing. They said that he had secret sins in his life. They said that his speech was unimpressive and that his presence was detestable. Some people say that Paul wasn't very handsome to look at. And after all the beatings he took, you can imagine what he might have looked looked like. In Corinth, these false teachers had gone in there to destroy him, and there really was a satanic enterprise to destroy the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul was vexed. And that's where we find him when we come to chapter 12. Paul is trying to process why God is allowing all of this to happen. Why is this happening? I'm being faithful, I've received your truth. I, I, I'm yielding to you, Lord, in a greater way than I've ever yielded to you before in my life, and yet my life seems to be harder now than it was before in some ways. And there's this spiritual battle taking place. What's going on here? 
I'm feeling in the deepest trouble that I've ever been in in my life. I'm trying to confront the most taxing problem in my life and I'm being attacked violently. That's where Paul is. And he's being attacked violently by the people that he's made the deepest investment into their lives. The people that he loves most dearly are rejecting him. They're forsaking him. At least some of them. You know, to be unloved and unappreciated, to to not be trusted, to have his affections maligned and his integrity questioned, his fruitfulness denied, his honesty attacked, his sacrificial service rejected, his credentials scoffed at, what is going on here? This dear apostle, this sacrificial apostle, I mean, he is the one who has sacrificed for them. And he's being attacked, and he doesn't deserve it. He's being abused in the midst of his faithfulness. You know, sometimes when a person is sacrificial, and they're unselfish, and they put their whole life into something, into people, sometimes your own family or your own children, and all you get is resentment in return, or rejection, or disloyalty, or hatred, it really is the deepest kind of suffering. This calls for an incredible grace. Grace that is of God. Rich grace. Abundant grace. And that's what we find in this passage. Paul learns in the midst of his trial four tremendous lessons. He lays them down for us so we can understand how to approach the deepest disappointments in life. The deepest trials in life. Let's look here at what sustained the Apostle Paul. And I will warn you as I begin this morning, these are not flowery. They will not tickle your ears. And in some ways, they may confront you where you're at. But I want you to know the the four truths that the Apostle Paul came to understand as he was going through these trials were, were incredibly helpful to him. And they've been helpful to me, and they'll be helpful to you as well. Number one, God uses suffering to humble us. God uses suffering to humble us. Notice verse number seven. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Twice he says it in that verse. A messenger of Satan. Notice there in verse number 7. There is given to him a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. But twice it is stated, both at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse, the reason why this messenger of Satan was given to the Apostle Paul to buffet him. Why? Lest he should be exalted. Above measure, twice, and he says it again. It's crystal clear. One of the primary reasons for this thorn in the flesh was to keep him from exalting himself, or in other words, to humble him. Why did he need to be humbled? And we might say this, because of the great revelations that God had given to him. He had had four personal encounters with the risen, ascended Christ in his life. Four times. 
And then we could add verses 1 through 3. He, he went to heaven. He had, he took, God took him to heaven and sent him back to earth. Which, by the way, he couldn't, God didn't allow him to describe in fullness and define for us. And that, that is a greatness of revelation. Nobody else had seen the risen Christ. No one else had gotten, or the ascended Christ, I should say. No one else had gotten a trip to heaven and back. No one. He had privileges of indescribable value which would make anybody proud. And he was in a debate with one of his ministry partners over what, or excuse me, if he was in a debate with one of his ministry partners uh, of what they should do, he might have uh, ended up by simply saying, well, how many times have you seen the Lord? And how many trips have you made to heaven? He might have said. And they would have said, well, none. And then he would have said, could have said, well, then we'll do my plan. I mean, there's a lot of leverage there. And so Paul says, for this reason of these great surpassing revelations, to keep me from exalting myself, that's the reason I'm suffering. Let me give you a simple principle. Humility is something that God desires for your life and my life. God wants us to be humble people. And every one of us in this room know that we all have a tendency toward being proud. Humility is what God desires. We could look at the Old Testament and we could think of Moses, perhaps the greatest leader of the entire Old Testament. He was an incredible leader. God uses him to, to lead the people, to confront Pharaoh, to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, across through the Red Sea on dry land, and to the promised land. Not into, but to the promised land. Uh, A phenomenal leader. And God describes him in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, and he says this, Moses was very meek above all the men that were upon the face of the earth. Moses was very meek, and the idea has the idea of humility. He was a humble man. The humbler we are, the more powerful we become. To be poor in spirit, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, looking not on our own things, but on the things of others. To have the mind of Christ, to be selfless. Humility took on himself the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and went all the way to death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2 says those things to us. So God is going to humble the Apostle Paul. To make him useful. Paul recounts in verse 7 that he didn't ask for this. And this is a gift that Satan wouldn't want to give to anybody, by the way. Humility is a gift from God that Satan would not want any one of us to have. Satan is not interested in our humility. God is interested in our humility. Notice there in verse number 7, again he says, "...unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh." He didn't ask for this. He didn't ask, Paul didn't ask for a thorn in the flesh. He didn't ask for this trial. You know, most of the time we don't. And yet God gave it to him. God is interested in our humility. And by the way, that word thorn in verse number 7, it's a word that could have been translated stake. 
A thorn in the flesh. Sometimes when we think of thorn in the flesh, we think of a sliver or something like that. Something, a sliver gets under our nail, right? And that aggravates us and we can't wait until it comes out. But this word thorn has the idea of a stake, a wooden shaft that could be used to impale somebody. It was a major deal. And Paul describes it as a messenger of Satan. And by the way, 188 times in the New Testament, the word angelos, sometimes translated angel, sometimes translated messenger, is used. And 188 out of 188 times, it refers to a person. I don't believe Paul was talking... This, I don't believe this thorn in the flesh necessarily was a disease of his eyes. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but to me, the best indication of what this messenger of Satan was is indicated here by the word, and I don't believe it was his eyesight. I believe it was a person or people. Paul's talking, he's, I don't think he's talking about a disease or a malaria or some external trouble 188 out of 188 times, it always refers to a person. A thorn is a person or people. And we might say this, now wait just a minute, you mean God gave to Paul an assault from the evil one? A messenger of Satan? An individual used by the devil to harm, to try the Apostle Paul? The answer to that question is yes. To buffet him. The word buffet means to wrap with knuckles. Why would God want to torment Paul? Why would God want to do that? This word buffet is used in Matthew 26 and Mark chapter 14 to speak of the soldiers who beat Jesus Christ in the face. Who struck him in the face. And Paul is saying here, there was a thorn in the flesh given to me. He didn't ask for it. A messenger, an angelos, an individual of Satan to buffet me. And the word buffet isn't just one strike and walk away. It's a repeated blow. I'm, I'm dwelling on this for just a few minutes because I want you to grasp the, how, what kind of a condition the Apostle Paul was in. Have you ever been in a trial where it just won't stop? It's one thing to be struck in the face and to be walked away from so you can tend to your wounds and heal up and move on with life. But sometimes God brings trials into our lives And it's almost like we can't move on. We just want to move on. We just want it to be over. I think that's where the Apostle Paul was. These attacks are coming upon him. Attack after attack after attack. Lie after lie after lie. People are listening to some of the lies. His heart is breaking. And it won't stop. Why is God allowing him to be attacked? And the answer is this. Paul, and Paul understood this. He said, lest I should be exalted above measure. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Why? Lest I should be exalted above measure. No, God, our Heavenly Father, knows us intimately. He knows our every detail. He knows what we need. As I've pastored now for almost five years, come December, 
it's not all been everything I thought it was going to be. Much of it I expected, but there's also much of it I did not expect. And you know what I did not expect the most? And pardon my ignorance. I did not expect my Heavenly Father to use the trials and the heartaches and the hardship to work in my life personally the way that he has. God has used every trial, every hardship, every difficulty to work in me, to mold me, to break me, to humble me, to humble me. And the Apostle Paul understood this. He grasped this. And as you and I go through life, this is something you and I need to get a hold of. We need to understand it. Our Heavenly Father loves us. He knows us like no, no other. And He loves us like no other. And He wants His best for us like no other. But a part of His best for us is that you and I would be humble. And when you and I go through a trial, let's look. God, have your will in my life. God, help me to be humble. Help me to be humble. You know, this is a pretty severe place to go, uh, to uh, pretty uh, extreme ends to go to humble a servant, don't you think? I can't think of anything more severe for God to unleash than to, uh, by his purpose and will than the forces of, of Satan to humble an apostle. And yet every trial of God has a purpose. You know, trials can test the strength of our faith. Sometimes trials come, are brought into people's lives and they say, you know what, if this is the way it's going to be, I'm just going to go live my life for me. I'm not going to bother to follow the word of God. I'm not going to bother to try to find out about God from his word. You know what, I'm not going to be disciplined. I'm not going to follow God. I'm not going to, you know what, I've had it. I'm just going to go live my life for me. If, if it's going to be hard, I might as well just have a little fun along the way and, and deal with the consequences that come with it. But to follow Christ... To take up my cross and follow the Lord, that's a hard thing to ask, to to stay after it. So sometimes trials reveal our faith. They, they, They can test the strength of our faith. Sometimes trials can wean us from worldly things. As as just in the last five years, there are times where the hardships are coming to bear and the trials are there. And it's not all church-related by any means, but just trials in life that God's working in the life of Seth Ferguson, areas of my life to humble me. And, and what I found is sometimes, you know what it makes me do? It makes me take inventory of my life. Lord, is there something in my life that, that shouldn't be there? Lord, what is it? What is it? Why? Why is this going on? That's not a bad question to ask. And Lord, what is it in my life? Is there some sin in my life? Because sometimes our Heavenly Father does chasten us because of sin. But not every trial is because of sin. So trials can wean us from worldly things. Trials can make heaven more inviting. I can remember as a, as a 15-year-old uh, pastor would preach or an evangelist would preach about the, the, the wonders of heaven. And I would sit there and think, you know, I just want to get my driver's license and get married, and then I'm ready. You know, but, but if the, I want the Lord to come, but if he could just hold off until I 
get my driver's license and get married. I'll be good after that. I just want to experience those two things. That's kind of silly, isn't it? But, you know, some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, those are my two things too. But trials can, can enhance the sweetness of heaven. It can make it more inviting. Trials reveal what we really love and what we really value. Trials help us, uh, they, in, they in equip us to help others who are suffering. Some of you have gone through things in your lives that I haven't gone through, and God can use you to be an encouragement to somebody else. God uses trials for all of these things. Trial produce in us patience, endurance, but mainly God uses trials to humble us. God wants us to be humble to the degree that he'll even allow the emissaries of Satan to torment his children if it assists in their humility. You say, I don't believe that God would use Satan to humble a man. Well, that's what the entire book of Job is about. The whole book of Job, God uses Satan to humble a man. Remember, Satan comes to God and says, let me at Job. The only reason he worships you and praises your name is because you've blessed him with so much. He's filthy rich. And God says, okay, but just don't touch his body. And so you remember Job loses his children and loses everything that he has. Everything that he has. And Satan comes back to God and says, well, the only reason he hasn't cursed you is because you haven't let me touch him. And so God says, go ahead and you can touch him, but don't take his life. And Satan strikes Job with boils from the top of his head, the crown of his head, to the sole of his feet. And his wife says, Job, curse God and die. The whole book of Job, God uses Satan to humble a man. At the end of Job, uh, the book of Job, Job is humble and Satan is the instrument. And oh, by the way, that's the story of the Apostle Peter, you remember, in Luke chapter 22, You remember in verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he, Satan, may sift you, Peter, as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. It was ugly, wasn't it, what Peter went through, the sifting, when Satan was sifting Peter at the trial of Jesus And and Jesus had told Peter this, you're going to deny me three times. And as as Jesus Christ is, is being tried illegally during the night, the Apostle Peter denies Jesus three times. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And he curses, I don't know the man. And the rooster crows. He kept denying Jesus. What how ugly it must have been. How vile, how corrupt it was, but it humbled the Apostle Peter. And Jesus said to him, when you've gone through it, you'll be able to strengthen your brethren. This is going to make you the man I've saved you to be, Peter. I have to humble you, Peter. You're way too proud. You know, we should thank God for the humility he brings into our lives. Charles Spurgeon used to say that there are only two kinds of men in the ministry, in the pastorate. There are the humble and there are the humbled. God uses suffering to humble us. Number two, God uses suffering to draw us to himself. Notice verse number eight. So the first truth is God uses suffering to humble us. Number two, 
God uses suffering to draw us to himself. He wants us to be close to him. Verse 8, he says this, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Now, what happens in the midst of humiliation? Where did he go in his suffering? Well, Paul fell on his knees, didn't he? He went to the Lord. And the second reason I notice why God allows suffering into our lives is to draw us to himself. You and I, in our flesh, have a tendency, every one of us, we have a bend in us, in our flesh, in our godless, wicked flesh. And the bend in us is not toward the Lord. It's toward our way of living, the way we used to live, who we used to be, independent of God, on our own, doing it our way. And every one of us, I have this bend too, this bend in me, away from God in and of my flesh. It's always away from God. And yet God wants us to be close to him, which is the best place to be. Now we can acknowledge that being close to the Lord is the best place to be. And yet many of us on a weekly basis make decisions that are away from God. And so God allows suffering into our lives to draw us to himself. And that's exactly what happens in in Paul's life. He's praying, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. The time of greatest need, the time of deepest pain, the time of severest trial, God letting false teachers ruin his reputation in Corinth and tear into his church the delight of his ministry, Paul's ministry, lost, the joy of service gone. He has nowhere to go, and yet he goes to the Lord in prayer. And the word besought is used frequently It's found repeatedly in the Gospels to speak of the pleas of people who came to Jesus for healing. Like the the father who came to Jesus whose son was possessed by an evil spirit and would cast himself into the waters oft times to drown him. Or the the evil spirits would cast the, the son of this father into the fire to destroy him. And the father is pleading with Jesus. He's praying to him. He's asking him. He's pleading and begging with him to please deliver him. Deliver my son. Humility results in seeking God. Pride results in walking away from him. And that happens 100% of the time. Humility results in seeking God. Pride results in walking away from him. And we have to understand that one of the things, one of the purposes for suffering that God allows in our lives is to draw us to himself. He wants to be close to us. And he wants us to ask, pray. He wants us to ask again and again and again. In Luke chapter 11, he teaches his disciples to pray with importunity is the word, to ask again and to ask again and to ask and keep going back and keep going back to be persistent. You remember what Paul had suffered? We, we touched on it just briefly in chapter 11. Look there in verses 28 and 29. One of the greatest sufferings the Apostle Paul had was his concern for the churches. Notice in, in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 11. 
He says, beside those things that are without, you know, shipwrecked three times and beaten five times and all that stuff, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches, the concern for the churches. And then he says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? One of the greatest things that the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest ways he suffered was his concern for the churches. Who is weak without my feeling the pain, is what he's saying. Who sins without me feeling it and hurting? And he goes to the Lord, and guess what? God doesn't take away this thorn in the flesh. And the Lord will allow troubles to come into our lives to humble us, and secondly, to drive us to himself, to turn us away from all other resources You know, there are times in my life when life reaches a level of difficulty that is totally overwhelming. And those times are the times of the most intense times, they're the most intense times of prayer in my life. It's the difficult times that drive us to the Lord. It shouldn't be that way necessarily, but it it shouldn't be that we're only driven to Him in difficult times, but that's how it tends to be, isn't it? And so Paul faced his great trial knowing that God uses, uh, he uses suffering to drive us to himself. And after three times when the Lord had, in talking to God and Paul pouring out his heart, three seasons of prayer, Paul submits to God. Notice verse number nine. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's reply, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory... I'll rejoice in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In verse 9, he says, And he said unto me, on all three occasions, the Apostle Paul got the same answer. My grace is sufficient for thee. And this, by the way, is an answer that was given once, twice, three times, and it, it never was going to change. It's a surpassing grace. Paul, my grace is sufficient it's, it, it, his, his grace is abundant. It's surpassing. Christ is full of grace, and because we are in him, we are full of grace. And he answered not by removing, God didn't answer by removing the pain, not by removing the trouble, but by his grace, the enduring grace. God gave relief to Paul, not by the removal of the problem, but by the sufficient strength to persevere through the necessary humbling process. God, you're using this in my life to make me who you want me to be, to make me the man you want me to be. You are my creator, you are my savior, and I trust you that you know what is best. You know my problem. And God, you're humbling me. You're making me the man you want me to be. Why would God want to give us grace to make us persevere through the trial so that at the other end of it we come out humble? And I want you to know this, every one of us in this room, no matter what the trial is, the grace of God is sufficient for you and for me to go through the trial. I've heard it said to me, this is too difficult. I can't go through this. I can't take this. And more times that I've had that said to me, my own heart has said that to myself. This is too difficult. God wouldn't expect you to go through this. But the Lord, in this passage and in your life, 
is making one of his children. Men, God is making a man in the image of his son. And you need to trust him. You need to go through life putting one foot in front of the other. You say, I don't know what to do about all this, but I'm going to do what I know I need to do, one step at a time. God is drawing you to himself. And then he displays his grace to us in verse number 9. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. His grace is sufficient. And then lastly, I want to notice in verse number 9 that God uses suffering to perfect his power in us. So number one, God uses suffering to humble us. Number two, God uses suffering to draw us to himself. Number three, God uses his suffering to display his grace to us. As you and I go through the trial, you'll go through things that you never thought you could make it through. And you'll say, it was by the grace of God. And lastly, God uses suffering to perfect his power in us. Verse number nine. Paul says this, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, Paul says. And the idea of pleasure is, I think well of them. I I, I value them. I, I value infirmities. I value reproaches. I value necessities. How many of us like necessities? How many of us like needs? How many of you like to be in a place where you don't have what you need? I mean, none of these things are things that anybody in their right mind, not looking through the lens of faith, would say, this is good. Nobody would do that. But when you and I know God, we can look at the difficulties of life and say, you know what? I can see God in my trial. God is with me going through the trial. And Paul says, I think well upon infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul was like Moses. He, became, he, he came to know the power of God in his life because he was humble. And by the way, this is not new. I told you about Job. You remember the experiences of Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. You could read about it in Lamentations chapter 3. Read Lamentations chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 24, and read about God's prophet, Jeremiah, who literally is saying, I think God's forsaken me. I think I'm being persecuted. I'm literally going, my life is come apart at the seams. This is not new. This is not a new means by which God humbles the most powerful and most effective of his servants. Strength is always perfected in weakness. No one is too weak to be powerful, but many are too strong to be powerful. So I'm I'm asking you to do the the, uh, illogical this morning from a fleshly perspective. Embrace the suffering that God has brought into your life. What do I mean by that? That doesn't mean you casually rock back in your chair and say, wow, this is great, isn't it? Sarcastically, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, knowing that God is in it, knowing that God is working through it, you recommit yourself 
to go through each day, one day at a time, one hour at a time, I am going to follow my God, the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God who saved me from my wicked sins. He knows me, he loves me, his way is best, and none of this is taking him by surprise, and I am going to follow and trust him, no matter what. I'm not giving up, I'm not going to run away, I'm not going to find another route, I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to watch and see him work for his glory and my good. Embrace it. It humbles us. It drives us to depend upon the Lord. In the midst of our own weakness, we become powerfully strong. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, and I'll close with this, says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. God's plan for you and God's plan for me is to work in our lives so that we will be who he wants us to be. You know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he didn't just purchase salvation from death and hell in the future. He purchased you and me so that we could be close to our loving Heavenly Father and we could have fellowship and walk with him. And that's what he wants. I don't know exactly how your situation is going to unfold. I don't know all the details. I don't know the length of time you're going to have to endure. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to recognize God's using this trial in my life. And I want God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in me. Lord, here I am. I'm surrendered to you. God, have your will in my life. Have your way in my life. If I could encourage you with one thing that you are responsible to do this morning before we leave, it's that. Your responsibility is to say, God, have your will in your way in my life. Use all of this to make me what you want me to be. Will you surrender to that? Are you willing to say, God, here's my life, take it? Or are you still holding on to your reputation or how you wanted it to work out? Surrender it to him. Let's all take our hymnals, and I want us to turn to a hymn.